Hi, everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. Our regular co-host, Adam Boileau, is uh, not with us again this week. He is still recovering from uh, the old COVID-19 there, and it's it's actually whacked him uh, pretty good. So he's okay. Uh, he is okay, but uh, yeah, woof. Send him your good vibes, please. And uh, yeah, Dmitry Alperovich is our guest co-host this week. He is the co-founder of CrowdStrike. But these days, he's doing non-cyber work as the founder of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. But uh, yeah, Dmitry has agreed to slum it in the cybers with the rest of us once more to co-host the show with me this week, which is great. And he'll be along in just a moment. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Proofpoint and Proofpoint's Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity, Ryan Calumber, will be along this week to talk about the changes uh, that he's seen in the criminal ecosystem over the last uh, six months. And there have been some pretty significant shifts. Uh, ransomware crews are in a little bit of disarray. Uh, BEC crews are getting a lot more sophisticated. One-time password bypass is just standard uh, for malware crews these days and on and on and on. It's just a great overview of what's happening out there in the crime scape. Uh, and a quick note, there will be no Seriously Risky Business podcast or newsletter this week because Tom Uren is on leave and there will be no Risky Biz News podcast or newsletter uh, next week from Catalin Kimpanu because he's on leave next week. Uh, so insert sad Pablo gif here. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the news now with Dimitri Alperovich. And uh, Dimitri, we spoke about this deal uh, on the show previously. Adam and I spoke about it. Uh, there was a. It briefly looked like L3 Harris, the defense contractor, was going to buy NSO Group. Someone asked the White House, "Hey, what do you think?" And they came swinging out against it. And uh, yeah, indeed, it looks like that deal uh, is dead. It does look that way, certainly. But but I want to go back to that deal for a second because I think that a lot of people bashed it uh, perhaps uh, too quickly. Uh, and certainly no one has any love loss for NSO. They've done a lot of really, really bad things over the years. But if you look at the alternatives, because ultimately that company is going to get sold. It's, it's owned by private equity. They want to get their money back. And the assets that it has in terms of its um, exploits that, that are, are not yet known, the malware, uh, of course, and, and the, the talent of the people will go to someone. And do we want the Chinese firm buying it or Russian firm buying it or some other nefarious regime around the world purchasing those assets? The answer is probably not. And when you look at the benefits that it could provide to the U.S. government, to the U.S. intelligence community, uh, there's this great uh, New York Times story by Ronald Bergman talking about how the CIA actually had bought NSO and provided it to Djibouti uh, for using counterterrorism operations. The reality is that you could see CIA wanting to work with a bunch of governments around the world that you don't quite trust with your um, you know, phenomenal capabilities that you might not even share with your five eyes, close partners, but you still want them to be able to execute these types of operations uh, for counterterrorism purposes and what have you. So it's perfect to give um, something like this to them where you're not compromising your own ops. But I mean, this is exactly how Israel was using NSO, right? So I mean, basically, what you're saying is instead of Israel using it to uh, uh, to to win favor, we could be doing that instead. Well, so imagine a situation where you know L3 Harris had bought this, and it looks like the deal is dead, as we mentioned. But if they had, they would have operational control over the servers, so they could provide oversight that you could potentially have, you know, in the circumstance I just described, all the data about targeting going to the CIA, 
CIA review in each case, maybe even a permission-based system where before Djibouti or someone else can use it, the CIA has to approve the target. So you can put checks and balances in a system like this and ensure that it's not abused. Clearly with NSO in the past, there's been no checks and balances and they were selling them to all kinds of nefarious characters left and right. Isn't it a sad state of affairs where we actually wind up trusting the CIA to behave more ethically than someone else, right? Like, see, we could solve this problem by just letting the CIA direct this thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it certainly looks like from from the reporting that, you know, elements of the US government, certain agencies were pretty keen for this to happen. And, you know, you alluded to it just then, but I think the most compelling case for this deal to have gone ahead is definitely along the you know the argument for non-proliferation right as you mentioned there's a lot of very smart people working for NSO and it's not like if NSO say NSO dissolves right because I also think that's a possibility they're under a lot of pressure thanks to sanctions and and whatnot say the company were to break apart it's not like those people don't go out and get other jobs and you know when when you look at like nuclear non-proliferation 101 non-proliferation is you keep these people busy so you know, a deal where NSO was operating under the oversight of a more responsible uh, state sponsor, uh, essentially, because that's what we're, we're really talking about here. I mean, it, it, it probably would be, uh, there would be some, definitely some positives to come out of that. But I think really a lot of the pushback on this is because uh, the acquisition of NSO by a Western uh, company would be seen as, you know, rewarding the wicked. And I think that's that's why we get the knee jerk out of it. And it's a reasonable reaction as well. I, I, I can definitely sympathize with it. But, but you know, I would just ask, how would people think if a Russian company bought them? Which alternative do you prefer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I don't see that happening though, right? I, I mean, the Israeli government's not going to let it fall yeah. into Russian hands. Maybe, right? we would hope. I mean, the Israeli government has sold weapons in the past to Russia. Um, not since the Ukraine uh, war began, the, the new one at least. Uh, but um, you know they've they've had fairly close relationships with China in the past um, that the U.S. has not been happy about. So it can go to a variety of places. And let me tell you, that IP will get sold, whether the people get sold or not. With the IP is an open question. But the IP in terms of the malware code, the exploits, any tool development that they've done around exploitation discovery, someone will pick that up probably fairly mm. cheaply these days. And, you know, we probably want to be careful about who that goes to. Yeah, liquidators auction. You know, everybody go grab a bargain, basically. Right? So anyway, Ellen Nakashima has a great write-up for the Washington Post if people want to go read more about that. Uh, now, look, staying on the topic of uh, uh, mobile security, Apple has introduced its lockdown mode in iPhone. And this is really designed to counter companies like NSO by allowing you to put your your iPhone into a much more secure state, it cuts back a lot of attack surface. It disables certain media types. It disables uh, incoming FaceTime calls from people who you don't FaceTime with, that sort of thing. Disables uh, font rendering for, you know, internet fonts and whatnot. Um, it looks really good. I got to say, Catalan Kimpanu and I, we actually got a briefing uh, under embargo from Apple like the day before they announced it. And, um, you know, it, it looks to be impressive work. I've spoken to a couple of people who do this, you know, vulnerability research into iOS and they say, yeah, this is this is going to make things pretty difficult. Yeah. And apparently, in addition to disabling services, I heard that it also disables just-in-time compilation, which has been used in a, in a yeah. range of exploits as well. Um, the biggest issue I see with it, and I'm actually very excited about it. Uh, I can't wait to try it myself. 
Um, but uh, for corporate users, it won't be very practical because it uh, won't work alongside an MDM because it will disa disable um, your ability to connect to an MDM. Uh, but other than that, um, I actually think a lot of these things should be enabled by default. You know, I don't know why you need uh, to FaceTime with people that you haven't called before. That could be a feature that is on by default and you can turn it off if you want to. So I would love to see some of these features be made into official releases where you don't have to disable everything, but you can kind of cherry pick um, the things that get disabled. But that's not how Apple. That's them. not how Apple does it. That's more of an Android thing, the cherry picking, right? Like, <laughs> I know. And, and I, I know. understand that. Like, and they make the point too that the proportion of people who actually have to worry about having code executed on their device by an attacker is quite small, right? So the 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 truth is, most users don't require. Uh, these types of controls, because it really is only the targeted uh, who who are who are having their devices compromised by rather sophisticated, you know, malware and exploits. Yeah, but the problem is that not everyone who is targeted knows that they're targeted. A lot of people mm. that I've talked to over the years have been shocked, absolutely shocked, to discover malware on their phone. They never thought that they'd be on the list. And I just think that it's better to build these types of security uh, capabilities and enable them by default um, to secure their entire ecosystem. Because reality is, we're going to see more of this type of exploitation going forward. More and more actors are going to deploy it. So yes, today it is the top 1% uh, or really 0.0001%, but that's going to expand over time. One thing that occurred to me though is that uh, we will see non-lockdown mode shaming. So when people post screenshots from their devices in InfoSec, <laughs> And you can see that there, there are internet fonts, right? And not the crummy default fonts. You can tell when someone's not in lockdown mode. Do you reckon there's going to be some social pressure there? Oh, for sure. Uh, I fully expect that. And, you know, the browser restrictions are the only ones that um, I thought um, uh, would be most annoying to people. Disabling of WebRTC is going to you know, prevent you from getting access to, to a bunch of content on the web and, and the like. The iMessage stuff, you know... Yes, people sometimes receive various media types over iMessage, but it's probably not a super common use case. And um, again, you can figure out how to do that to trust um, people that you've contacted before but rejected for others. There's just a range of great ideas here that they can figure out how to customize, customize and enable by default. Now, what do you make of the argument? And, um, you know, it is, it is an argument that this is going to make things a little bit too easy for criminals who want to resist surveillance. I'm not sure that I entirely buy it, uh, to be honest, because a lot of these people, they don't trust an iPhone, right? And, and when, you, when you say, oh, you know, terrorists will use it, well, I don't see the average sort of ISIS commander is going to use, an, you know, an iPhone. Like, that's the last thing that they're going to use. I would think, because they just fundamentally don't trust American technology, and nor should they. Yeah, that argument makes zero sense to me because uh, it's essentially an argument to make a platform less secure because a few criminals may um, uh, you know, escape surveillance. And by the way, there's a range of ways to surveil them without targeting the phone itself. You know, Obviously, you can collect information from uh, telcos in terms of their geolocation, who they call, etc., um, so I never understood that law enforcement argument concerning both targeting of devices, but also breaking, trying to break end to end encryption, uh, because nowadays law enforcement agencies and certainly Intel agencies just have a wealth of information that they have, that they can access about you, all of the digital exhaust that you produce online, way more than they had 20 years ago. And now they're complaining that, you know, a small part of that digital exhaust, they may not able, be able to get into. Well, it's infinitely more than they had 20 years ago. Anyway, so they're still better off.
Yeah, I do feel like to a large degree law enforcement has adapted, right? Um, Definitely. But there are still those cases and you read about them. I'm sure you've seen them as well where there's just some absolute head-scratching whodunit and, uh, you know, there's evidence that's on the device and they can't get to it. And um, But I guess... There will always be cases like this. Sometimes the device is not available, right? So, you know, not every crime is going to be solved and we just have to live with that in an open society. Well, and you actually just touched on what I was going to say next, which is perhaps, um, uh, you know... uh, protecting people who are involved in important work like defending human rights, perhaps protecting the safety of those people uh, is enough to offset any sort of boost we get in in, in um, unsolved crimes as a result, right? You can't just weigh it as a one-to-one sort of thing. Anyway, uh, interesting stuff, but that's a, that's a whole other rabbit hole, so let's not go there. Catalan uh, Kimpanu wrote for us uh, in a recent newsletter that 16,000 Yubikis have been deployed to Ukrainian government executives. Uh, Yubico donated 30,000 uh, security keys. I'll just mention too, uh, by way of disclosure, that they are a small sponsor of uh, Risky Biz, uh, just so everybody knows. But um, yeah, 30,000 uh, keys they donated to Ukraine, and they are now being uh, distributed. Catalan's got some great quotes uh, in this piece from the Ukrainian guy who's responsible for rolling this out. Yeah, th- this is a terrific initiative, probably one of the best security initiatives I've seen so far in trying to help Ukraine uh, move to a better security posture. Obviously, right now, they're just facing an onslaught of spear phishing attacks hitting their inboxes you know, every single day. And uh, one of the things that happened prior to the war and, and throughout the, the conflict is that Ukraine was moving rapidly to G Suite and Azure um, away from their data centers because those data centers, uh, of course, are being targeted kinetically by the Russians. And doing a migration like this, which is which you're doing in record time and not necessarily with the time to prepare, you're going to have a variety of different holes, you know, both configuration-wise and authentication. So having YubiKeys uh, distributed to workers that are now accessing those accounts to make sure that they can fall for uh, spear phishing is a really terrific idea. And I have to say, you know, Ukraine actually shows you that you can rapidly, ra- rapidly deploy security solutions like this in a crisis. Obviously, <laughs> you don't want to be in a war just to improve your security, but it can be done. They're working towards, they're saying, 100,000 people in Ukrainian government getting these keys, which is about 10% of the people working in their public administration, it would be probably one of the highest adoptions of keys uh, on the planet uh, of any organization. So just a terrific initiative by Yubico and um, uh, really applaud Ukrainians for moving forward so quickly with us. Yeah, one of the quotes in this piece from Catalan is, uh, my point is that Ukraine should become an example for other countries who cannot afford AI behavioral biometrics anti-phishing system crap and stuff like this. <laughs> we cannot afford these things in Ukraine. This should become an example uh, on how to uh, actually and effectively defend yourself because we're dealing with the first cyber war in human history. What a quote. <laughs> yeah, except for quote. the cyber war part. Uh, I love the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, yeah, it's a very, very 2022 quote. Um, we got a story here from the Daily Swig. PyPy uh, is distributing the the repo is distributing four thousand security keys to maintainers of what they're calling critical projects. Funny side note on this one: one of the people they were going to mandate two FA for had a bit of a tantrum and actually removed their repo. And it was one of those things that was like there were dependencies everywhere and it broke all of this stuff. And then they were like, lol jokes. And then PyPy actually had to figure out how to restore it. 
Um, and meanwhile, he'd added it under a different name or something. Anyway, it was a real mess and, um, you know, it was kind of a jerk move. But look, the reason I, I wanted to highlight this story is because we're seeing a lot of the code repos and sites like GitHub and whatever move towards uh, mandating 2FA, particularly for important stuff. Can't happen soon enough, but it's nice to see PyPy going for um, uh, hardware keys like, you know, Ubicos, or in this case, they're using Titan keys, I think. No, it's a great initiative. NPM is now doing this for the top 100 Node.js packages as well. As you mentioned, GitHub has been mandating it um, or is about to start mandating it for all their contributors. And of course, they had the option to use um, 2FA for a long time. Uh, I actually have a personal story here, which is not a great one because uh, <laughs> I have a GitHub repo that I can't get into anymore except in read-only mode because I had 2FA enabled, but it was through a phone app, not a not a um, YubiKey, and long story short, my phone died, and I was using Google Authenticator, which really, Google, if you're listening, you gotta figure out a way to back up Google Authenticator, like virtually every other Authenticator app. So long story short, I lost the Authenticator codes, and for whatever reason, my recovery keys don't, don't work. Um, maybe I copied it wrong, and GitHub won't let me in back into my repo. So we have to find better ways for recovery of these things when, um, when these problems occur, particularly software, uh, base 2FA, but even even if a hardware one, if you lose it. But I, it was funny because we were talking about this before we got recording and I'm thinking here you are, someone who's really well connected in technology, co-founder of a company that I think at its peak uh, when the market was crazy was worth something like $60 billion. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you're not some rando, right, in the technology industry and you've been trying to get this account back You've trying to be. You've been trying to get this access back from GitHub, and they've just told you like, no. get lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I do have access to the code, so I can copy it and recreate it. But you know, I'd like to get access to all the commits, and it's yeah. just really, really annoying. Yeah. Anyway, so if anyone from GitHub is listening, <laughs> help Dimitri out, will you? Now let's talk about Microsoft and the case of the the ever changing uh, position on macros. Uh, as most listeners would have heard by now, uh, you know Microsoft announced this big change that uh, uh, Office documents with embedded macros, if those documents came from an internet source, uh, those macros were not going to run. And uh, you know, in discussions I've had with people who work uh, in positions to observe attacker behavior, they've already seen attackers changing their their techniques in response to this because you know vba macros in an office doc such a classic uh classic technique and such an effective one so microsoft did introduce this change and then late last week someone spotted that in some release notes or something they said oh we're actually undoing uh that change and then, of course, Q furor, everyone's uh, getting quite mad about it. And now Microsoft has said, well, it's only a temporary withdrawal of that feature. So you and I were, were chatting and doing a bit of speculation. I mean, something that would explain this is if Microsoft somehow botched um, the execution of this change. But they're not giving any timeline for when they're actually going to make the change happen again. It's all, it's a mess is what I'm getting at. It is, and I'll tell you, in my time at CrowdStrike, macros were the bane of my existence because obviously so much malware is coming through them. You know, it's been now over 25 years since we uh, first saw malware being distributed through, through Office macros, and they're, they're still very, very popular. But also, there's so much crazy, uh, really suspicious uh, macro uh, usage, particularly in the financial sector, that is completely legitimate. So anytime you write a detection or prevention rule thinking this is never going to get used legitimately, 
always, <laughs> always been proven wrong. And, and in the most critical scenario of, you know, a big hedge fund calling you and, and screaming at you that you just ruined their business because, of course, all of them run off of Excel, amazingly enough. Um, so it's really, really hard to get, get this right. And we know, for example, even though they're disabling macros that are being downloaded from the Internet, the reality is there's a lot of organizations out there, you and I know some, that have publicly routed IP as their actually private networks. And you know, as I was looking at this, there's a message board where Microsoft announced this feature um, as it was still going through the beta release process. And a few people were complaining that it was actually breaking in scenarios that should not have been covered by this, where it was kind of an internal downloadable script. So I'm kind of wondering if, if there was a bug in the actual implementation and as they were releasing this feature, they got flooded with complaints, so they panicked and uh, announced that they're rolling it back, and then they realized after looking deeply into it that maybe it had just been a bug in the code and they're now working to fix it, and that's why they said, well, it's actually temporary. It's a theory, we don't know it for sure, but yeah. uh, it sounds plausible. Well, not only is it a theory, but it's basically the best case scenario because the worst case scenario is that they didn't make a mistake. They pushed it out and it still broke stuff anyway. And now they're back to the drawing board trying to figure out how to actually introduce this restriction without causing, yeah, hedge funds to ring them up and, and scream at them. And it's not straightforward trying to do a change like this across uh, an, uh, you know, an entire global economy that is dependent on Microsoft software. Yeah, and, you know, I'm so users. glad... Sorry, over a billion users using Office, and the reality is that the one thing that Microsoft does arguably really well is their focus on AppCompat, where you can take an old DOS binary from 1982 and it will still run on Windows 10. Right, that is not trivial to to keep working. And of course, Apple just ignores all that entirely and says, you know, if it's older than six months, we don't care, and you'll not be able to execute it. But Microsoft really focuses a lot on that. And uh, it's hard to do and, and not compromise on security when, when, you, when you have that ambition. I mean, it was interesting what you, you mentioned just a minute ago about, what you, uh, about your time at CrowdStrike, right? When you would push some detection or something where you would think, this, never in a million years is this going to stop something legitimate. I mean, I'm guessing that happened more than once. Like, like how did you manage that from a perspective of running a, you know, an EDR company? Like, uh, what do you do about that? Because you're, you're essentially running into the same problem as Microsoft is here. Yeah, and, and generalizing beyond just macros, I mean, there's almost never a behavioral detection rule that will not trigger false positives somewhere. And uh, you just have to constantly work around it. And hopefully, you know, these are edge cases that you can take care of through allow listing and the like. Uh, but it's a really, really tough problem. And, and the more generic you try to have the rule to, to do a detection, the more likely it's, it's going to false positive. So what do you do if you're Microsoft? I mean, because ultimately, these people aren't going to pivot away from Microsoft's technology. So do you just say, screw you and push the change through anyway and hope they can figure out how to make their stuff work through group policy? Or do you, you know, which, which approach do you think is reasonable for them to take at this point? Because ultimately, macro malware is very, very damaging globally. So something needs to be done about this. At what point should Microsoft just tell its customers to get stuffed? Well, the reality is that you do have the ability to block these macros today through group policy, right? And most organizations should be enabling that. So I do think that at some point, Microsoft needs to move to on by default setting, but provide a way for people to disable it. So that if that very large bank that, uh, you know, spending 100 million bucks a year on Microsoft uh, services is calling to complain, you can say, 
here's a setting just uh but hang on off. hang on if there's a setting to enable it in group policy i mean that was the change here which is to enable it by default and yeah. surely they could just tell them okay go hit this toggle switch you know to, to, to turn macros back on right they could i mean it just depends on how many complaints they get so the goal is probably to reduce it you know if it is a bug to ultimately fix it but you know instead of having a hundred thousand customers calling you irate Hopefully it will be you know a few dozen, and you can handle that through support channels. I just feel like you know they've announced that it's a a temporary pause, and I just think I wonder if that's two months or two years, right? Let's um, let's see. Now, you would of course be aware of those uh, those those activists, Dimitri, those <laughs> absolutely genuine activists who've been on a hacking spree in Iran, attacking steel mills and stuff. That hacktivist group that is totally not uh, an Israeli military uh, uh, campaign is dropping uh, 20 gig of data from the steel mills that got vaped in that ICS attack. What's really funny here is the is the documents that they're releasing uh, show close links between uh, some of these steel companies and the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And this looks a lot like something that would legally justify the action that they took, which is kind of funny for a group of hacktivists to do, don't you think? Yeah, and uh, the name of the group, of course, uh, in Persian is Predatory Sparrow. Uh, Sparrow, um, just as a random tidbit for people listening, um, nothing to do with the story, means freedom in Hebrew, uh, the word drawer. So, Total coincidence, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely uh, nothing absolute to do with this, with this actual story. Uh, but you know what I found really interesting is that they dumped 20 gigs, which, by the way, they said is only the first part, so there's more to come. But they dumped it on Kim.com's MAGA which is, of course, why not? But as someone who has been trying to download that archive all day today because Mega limits your, your download throughput unless you pay them, which I'm not going to to do, uh, this is really, really annoying. But, um, uh, you know, <laughs> you've talked on the show before that the Israelis have been fairly public about this issue, uh, allowing their media, which is highly censored on these types of topics, to actually report that AD200 was involved in this operation and and then later on announcing that Defense Minister Gantz has launched an investigation of the leak. So quite a lot of messaging coming out of Israel on this issue. Yeah, it's all over the shop. It's pretty funny though, but it's just, you know... Just so obviously not activists. But anyway, um, look, we've got a really, really interesting story here from Adam Janofsky. This one just made it into the run sheet uh, today. Uh, you would remember that last year, the United States introduced a law or regulation, can't remember which it was, sorry. Um, so basically whistleblower provisions, whereby if you had evidence that, uh, you know, a, a company you were working for that did deals with the federal government, was engaged in misconduct, uh, you could report them. And then if there were a settlement, you would actually get a chunk of that settlement. We've got one of them here with an aerospace and defense firm named uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne, which is just such an awesome American, like, you know, defense contractor name, Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, they are paying a $9 million settlement uh, over cybersecurity violations in its contracts, right? So basically they had to meet a certain level of cybersecurity assurance to get these government contracts. They hired a CISO. Uh, the CISO's name is uh, Brian Marcus. And uh, he, he's going to get 2.6 mil out of this payout, actually. Uh, but he joined in, in 2014 as a senior director of cybersecurity, and they 
they told him you'll have an annual budget between 10 and 15 mil. You're going to have a staff of five to 10 employees and you're going to have 25 contractors. And uh, basically once he got into the job, he had a budget of 3.8 mil, a staff of two and seven contractors, right? So he was not given what he asked for. And then he basically refused to certify that the company was compliant. And so they fired him. And that's how we wound up here, basically, is he's, he's now dobbed on them. He's gone and informed on them to the government, which has taken action. And uh, yeah, now they're going to settle for nine mil and he gets to walk away with a bag of money. Yeah. And uh, the important thing here is it's not just that, you know, he was promised certain resources and he didn't get them because, you know, let's face it, you know, that's the reality of today's world. So I'm not sure that people should be necessarily given uh, multimillion dollar awards for that. Uh, but uh, a more outrageous thing was that because uh, obviously they're a defense contractor, they have to report uh, to the government about their cybersecurity practices. And they were actually saying that they had certain security equipment deployed when in reality it was still sitting in a box not connected to any network. So that to yeah. me was a much more egregious thing. That was clearly a lie. They should have been fined for it. But this is a great initiative. This is actually the first case under this initiative from DOJ, what they're calling the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. It is using existing regulations, existing law, just uh, applying it now to cyber, the False Claims Act, that allows whistleblowers to get payouts for reporting information about government contractors that violate the law. And um, I think this this was a terrific initiative, and it's great to see it being used so quickly. And I'm sure it's going to send uh, chills down the spine of any others that uh, may be thinking of lying to the government about these issues. I mean, this is something now that a CISO at a company engaged in similar practices, they could just print this article out and leave it on board members' desks, right? <laughs> like that's that's it. And if the, if the board members don't come to the party, hey, let's call this the new CISO retirement fund planning campaign, right? Like this is a, this is a great way to get paid. Well, and by the way, don't underestimate the power of the name and shaming here. Yes, they were going to pay $9 million settlement, uh, which really is, is not a lot for this company. But being known as, as a contract that engages in cybersecurity fraud may very well affect their ability to win other contracts in the future, competitive contracts. So this is something that no defense contractor ever wants to be caught doing uh, because of the implications for future business. Yeah. Now, last week, CISA and uh, the FBI and I think uh, Treasury uh, released a joint advisory about North Korean malware, and they sort of outlined some details about a campaign, a ransomware campaign launched by North Korea targeting American healthcare, right? Now, I get that this is dealing with activity that dates back to May last year, but I doubt they're putting out this advisory because this threat actor stopped. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> so this is a well-known threat actor, APT38 by Mandy at Stardust Chalima by, by um, CrowdStrike, uh, Unit 180 of the Reconnaissance General Bureau, North Korean Military Intelligence Agency. Uh, this reporting was actually based on a report from Stairwell from a good friend of mine, Silas Cutler, who was with me at CrowdStrike, um, outlining this Maui ransomware that has been used by the North Koreans. What I found really interesting is how primitive it was because we have seen other ransomware being used by the North Koreans, uh, Chi Chi and VHD and others that they were fairly sophisticated and have been used widely in Asia. They haven't gotten much attention because they've targeted Thailand and Indonesia, India, that doesn't usually get to the uh, top of inboxes for uh, Western reporters. But this particular ma malware didn't have any embedded ransom notes in it, doesn't, doesn't have automated transmission of keys. It really is very manually operated where the, um, the hacker has to specify which files to encrypt, then has to manually exfil the, the keys, the RSA keys that the malware generates, 
really, really primitive stuff. So I'm surprised that they haven't used something more sophisticated. Maybe they uh, let an intern that just came into the job <laughs> launch a new campaign targeting the healthcare sector. And that's what uh, they came up with. But yeah, North Koreans have been engaged in ransomware activity for some time. They're not one of the top actors, but as you said, they're not going to stop because uh, this same actor, APT38 Stardust Chalima, is of course the same actor that was going after the banks. Uh, people that remember the Bank of Bangladesh heist uh, back in a few years ago and many others. So their responsibility is to make money for the regime and ransomware, as we know, is a good way to do it. Why do you think CISA, the FBI and Treasury are putting out an alert now? now and I will say, like, I, I, I get this, that North Korea has been at this for a while, but I, you know, it's my job to look at basically every news report that gets published on, on InfoSec. And I have seen, you know, the words North Korea come up with the word ransomware a little bit more often uh, lately. Is, could it be the case that they're sort of scaling up these operations and that's why we're starting to see bulletins like this? Well, in the past, we really didn't see a lot of this activity in in the West. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of it was in Asia. So we're starting to see more and more targeting of, of Western institutions, particularly in healthcare from the North Koreans. And I think that's why it's it's getting yeah. the attention from CISA and others. That absolutely 100% makes sense. So thank you for clearing uh, that up for me. Now, scumbags on scumbags. Uh, this report from Jonathan Grieg uh, over at The Record. Some medical debt collection firm called Professional Finance Company exposed a lot of data on healthcare orgs that it deals with. But let me just start this discussion by saying I personally don't think a medical debt collection firm is something that should exist, but it's probably not so great uh, that their bad practices have exposed the data of 650 actual healthcare organizations. Well, not just their data, but of course, we're talking about patient records, most likely that are ensnared in this. Yes. So we don't necessarily care about 657 healthcare organizations, but we care about their patients. And look, I, I went through that list and it's a lot of small organizations. It's dental offices, ambulance services, community healthcare centers. By the way, it took them two months, this uh, medical debt collection company, to notify their, their, uh, their customers. They detected this breach in late February, did not notify till early May when clearly they knew that they've been under attack because it was is ransomware and um, they, they knew right away that sensitive data was was encrypted, if not taken. And I do wonder, because the, the organizations that were ensnared in this are so small, and uh, what exactly are they going to do when they're notified? You know, if you have a family dental office practice with two people and no IT people, no security people... Uh, you know, how are they going to do the notifications to their their, their patients? Uh, it's just a total mess. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think we've got a couple other ransomware ones. There's a French telecom, La Post Mobile. Uh, they are recovering from a ransomware attack. Uh, what else have we got? We've got a... Well, and by the way, that is LockBit. Uh, La Post Mobile is a LockBit ransomware attack, and we're seeing a lot of LockBit activity now. And in general, I was talking to some folks in industry and government. The, the consensus seems to be that ransomware is certainly picking up its pace. And the short relief period that we've had in the last six months, particularly since uh, sanctions went up on, on Russia and made it more difficult for criminals to actually uh, launder their pr proceeds, um, that they found ways around it. And uh, we're seeing it back, ransomware is back. That's, that's interesting because in this week's sponsor interview that I'm going to play shortly, uh, we've actually got Ryan Calumba, uh, uh from Proofpoint saying that, yeah, there has been a bit of a lull in ransomware because it looks like there's been some cash out issues and also watching their stored reserves of Bitcoin just be absolutely wiped out <laughs> by the market has, um, has also kind of 
sapped their mojo a little bit, you might say. But it is interesting if you're if you reckon that it's on the horizon that it's coming back, then good news, everyone. Uh, basically, uh, but yeah, there was a, a community college in California that uh, had some drama as well. Uh, what else have we got here now? Uh, yes. There's been a settlement. Uh, it looks like there's there's going to be a settlement uh, around the OPM data breach, and victims are expected to receive about seven hundred dollars each. Well, hold on, Patrick, because I'm one of those victims. I'm one of those victims, and I read the fine print, and I have no clue whatsoever how I can get a single dollar out of the settlement. I'm sure a bunch of lawyers will get very rich, but to qualify. You have to show that A, your information was compromised. I have no idea how we would do that. And two, you have to show that you spend money or time related to the breach. How in the world am I gonna do that given that this is uh, the Chinese intelligence service? I'm quite certain that they most likely did not resell my information on the black market. And I, if I'm getting uh, my ID stolen or, or getting credit card fraud committed against me, that this is most likely not related to OPM. But how would I ever prove him if it was? So. I don't know who in the world is going to get a single dollar other than the lawyers out of this uh, settlement. Uh, I suspect there'll be a process where you'll just sign some sort of affidavit saying you wasted a bunch of time on hold with your banks trying to change some of your info or something like that, right? But I mean, the angle that I was going to talk about on this isn't really about that. It's about the fact that, okay, while this is a punitive measure that punishes OPM for its practices, it does nothing for the victims. You can't, you know, you can't fix something like this once it's done. So what's the point of a settlement? Like, what are we doing, man? You know? Well, in particular in this case, and, and look, I, I'm all for punishing people that don't have good security and lose personal identifiable information, but we have to be you know, clear here, this was an intelligence service operation. The goal was to collect information on Americans that could be used for counterintelligence purposes by the Chinese government for recruitment and so forth. And you're not going to have, a, you know, credit card taken out in your name because of this hack. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, another one from Jonathan Grieg, which is uh, about uh, Chinese, uh, uh, you know, APT crews apparently targeting Russian government and telecoms. Uh, that's another one from uh, Jonathan Grieg over at The Record. You know, what I found most fascinating about this is that the people that outed this uh, this activity were the Ukrainians. The CERD uh, uh, UA uh, published a report yeah. talking about the malware. And, and I'm actually curious because they talked about the fact that it's impacting uh, Russian government agencies, uh, science and research facilities, aviation. But I do wonder because it was uh, Russian language-based phishing uh, scams uh, that uh, were sending out by sonar rats that are used by a variety of different Chinese groups uh, and was actually mimicking the RU CERT memo there was a real memo that was put out by the Russian CERT uh, to government agencies warning them of these types of phishing attacks. But I do wonder if the Ukrainians uh, got a copy maybe because it was targeted at them as well. Maybe the Chinese uh, accidentally sent the wrong phishing email to the Ukrainians because, you know, it, you would expect them to try to hack both sides of the conflict to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, other reports of Chinese activity targeting Russian uh, interests since the war began, right? And, you know, people are trying to uh, infer a little bit too much from that, like, see, China's not really on Russia's side and whatever. It's like, well, China's on China's side and it likes to know what's going on. So you're going to expect to see this sort of stuff, but we shouldn't really read well, too much into it. And, hey? and the Russians are well aware of this. In fact, um, if you look at non-cyber activity, the espionage cases that the Russians are prosecuting, uh, obviously, number one source of cases is, is people that they're alleging are working for Western intelligence services. Number two, China. 
they're arresting a lot of people for allegedly yeah. spying for China. So yes, this they have uh, friendship without limits, as they call it, quote unquote. But uh, uh, apparently, the limits don't extend to espionage. No yeah. limits on our, our us reserving our right to hack the crap out of you, right? That's right. That seems to be the friendship without limits. Uh, now we just run through the comedy stories of the week. Um, there was another one of these cases where someone stole a bunch of uh, soul tokens and Ethereum from one of these, um, you know, DeFi platforms. That yeah, so they stole something like eight nine million, uh, gave some of it back and kept one point six eight million dollars worth of crypto as like a negotiated bounty like how is this normal like this happens once and it's interesting news but this is like something that happens every week now like you steal you steal their money you offer to give most of it back and then you get away clear with like well yeah so first of all how do you call it a bounty when when they stole it from you like that's not how bounties usually work but two what i found (laughs) most interesting is that it was a combination of solana tokens and stable coins that they stole so about 6.5 million were stable coins 2.3 million solana and what they negotiated is that um the criminal um or 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 the white hat hacker i guess as, as they're now renamed uh would keep most of the solana but would give up the stable coins. I really wonder if that was a good deal for them, given the instability in crypto prices. Was it stable coins? I thought it was. I thought it was Ethereum. Oh no, I see. I see. Stable coins worth about six point five. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was Solana. About sixty-five percent of the Solana tokens that were stolen, he gets to keep. Uh, the stable coins go back, uh, or I guess uh, he's now converted the stable coins, so so he's giving it back in Ethereum, but the equivalent amount. But uh, I really wonder if he if he got the best uh, the best deal there. That's the funny thing about crypto right now is there's not a lot of market depth in this stuff. It was you who sent me that amazing blog post, and I did mention it on the show uh, about the 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 person unknown who did like a loan. They used a like a, a crypto token that had good market capitalization, but there was no market depth, so they couldn't sell it. So they used it on collateral as a loan for stable coins and then just disappeared with them, which is, um, I think I called it at the time, a really creative way for a rat to leave the sinking ship, right? <laughs> so uh, you're right. Let's see. Let's see. Maybe this attacker can go uh, cash out the similar way by using their their uh, valuable tokens that they can't actually sell uh, as collateral for some loan against a stablecoin. God, the world is so stupid. And uh, there's another like decentralized cryptocurrency exchange called Uniswap. And uh, initially, uh, uh, it looked like um, it looked like someone was attacking it, and then they figured out it was actually just a uh, a phishing, like it was an airdrop phishing attempt, and you know millions missing. And it's just hilarious watching all of this stuff unfold. Uh, the last few stories actually have been uh, all from Jonathan Grieg over at the Record. So nice work this week, Jonathan. Um, Dmitry Alparovich, thank you so much for filling in for Adam Boileau this week. And um, yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, great to chat to you, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again uh, before too long. Thanks. Thanks for having me, and sorry I couldn't do the Kiwi accent. That was Dmitry Alperovich there, founder of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ryan Calumba, the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy with Proofpoint. 
And this interview is just a bit of an overview, really, of changes that Ryan has observed in the uh, cybercrime ecosystem. Proofpoint handles a lot of email in particular, so they have incredible visibility into how criminals are targeting organisations and what they're targeting them with. Uh, and as you'll hear, Ryan says BEC actors are getting much more sophisticated and ransomware actors are actually having a bit of a bad time right now, although, as we just heard in the news, that might be turning around. Uh, but here's Ryan Kalimba. So the targeted threat landscape has changed a lot in the last six months. You have still one big dominant ransomware linked actor in Emotet Conti, but the other groups in the top 10, you know, half of them are BEC crews. Mm. And it's been interesting to see that sort of disruption happen. And it also comes along with other parallel developments like card stealers in, uh, in Emotet, where you can see a future in which ransomware isn't 99% of the criminal ecosystem that is not BEC. And the BEC groups increasingly drive the sorts of volumes that we only ever saw from ransomware actors before. And that's an interesting future to look forward to. So what do you attribute that shift to? Because in my mind, you know, I, I think a big part of it has got to be that ransomware has got harder because, I mean, maybe improved controls uh, is a part of that because it's been such a big threat for long enough that people are starting to improve a little uh, in, in terms of defending. I don't think that's a major factor, though. Uh, I would think, though, the bigger factor would be the difficulties some of these crews are encountering in cashing out. And, and now, you know, with a sort of collapse of the price of Bitcoin, they've seen some of the money that they haven't been able to cash out just wither. Um, do, do you think that's what's going on here? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. You know, three trillion in market it cap down to one trillion is a pretty big haircut. Uh, and ultimately, I think from a tactical perspective, you know, there was always some creativity, especially in the ransomware ecosystem around the initial compromises. You know, the Baza Group in particular shifting to phone numbers as their version of IOCs or creating their own Netflix clone. Amazing work on the social engineering front, but ultimately we have learned to defend against their playbook very, very successfully for the most part. And mm. so the emergence of, you know, basically card stealers coming back, ransomware crews that are only doing extortion based on data theft. You know, it's a diversification that we hadn't seen for a while. Yeah, yeah. We've seen some talk now about ransomware crews kind of starting to get a little bit interested in doing a, you know, bit of BEC themselves, doing a bit of dabbling. Do you think that's something that we're going to see? It wouldn't be shocking to see that uh, come to pass. But I think the other part about the BEC crews that we shouldn't forget is that they know how to use malware too, right? They've been using rats for years. They know how to use packers. We, we know that they're not completely reliant on spoofed emails and the really basic tactics that they unfortunately all too often get associated with. And so it would be very interesting to see the techniques, which are already overlapping to a fairly substantial extent, blur even further, where really only the monetization strategy gets a bit different. But ultimately, I do think that you're going to see the tooling that ransomware crews and BEC crews use start to overlap increasingly, independent of what ultimately they end up doing. If you're stealing data to try and get in between a wire transfer going from point A to point B, 
or you're stealing data to hold it to ransom, you're still stealing the same data. You're still well, compromising the same endpoints. Yeah, I mean, Adam and I had that discussion a while ago where it's like, we can foresee a time when someone gets domain admin and they use it to do BEC instead of ransomware. Right. Uh, but then there's the whole concept of, well, why not both? Do the BEC first, then ransomware them, right? Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's totally a thing that could happen. We have seen, look, one thing that's been driving the, the BEC ecosystem is Microsoft's, frankly, shitty defaults. Uh, things like allowing IMAP. And for those who don't know, IMAP is a protocol, an old mail protocol that does not support two-factor authentication. So, you know, if, if you have 0365 mail and IMAP is turned on, even if you've got your users using 2FA, attackers can still brute force against IMAP and gain, gain access, right? That's the very simple description of why that's a problem. Microsoft is changing those defaults. They're enabling uh, 2FA across most customer mailboxes, I believe. This is going to have a substantial impact on the BC ecosystem. What do you think that's going to look like? Do you think that's just going to wash out the the lower tier players? Because that's sort of how I feel it's going to it's it's going to it's going to get rid of the lazy crews who aren't that skilled. But I don't think it's going to affect the the premium BC crews that much. Yeah, I, I think that's broadly likely to be true. But from a tradecraft perspective, we've seen BEC groups do two things. One, some of them are capable of using the new generation of fish kits that are basically transparent reverse proxies. They're sitting yeah, in so they're doing real-time, real like one-time pass, passcode uh, interception, right? Exactly. And they're relaying yeah. it back to the real site, and they're stealing the session cookie and using that. So certain forms of MFA are still unfortunately going to be vulnerable to that. And again, those are fish kits, right? You can buy them, you can use them. They're not all, of the, all that challenging to deploy. So I think the lowest possible level will go away. But the other thing that I think we should pay attention to particularly is uh, the epidemic of sort of supplier third-party compromise. You know, su supply chain risk is not the proper, proper way to refer to this, but there are so, so many large organizations where the problems they deal with is the little tiny third parties they rely on and they exchange money and goods with getting compromised constantly. They were the ones getting popped by all the IMAP and POP3 and SMTP brute force attacks. And then you're seeing basically real compromised accounts ask you to change the payment instructions. And ultimately, yeah. that is likely to probably become harder to do, which is, which is a good thing. But ultimately, also, it might push the BEC crews, especially the ones that have scaled and are now actually sending malware at volumes that we only ever saw out of big banking Trojan and ransomware actors, it pushes them towards malware, right? Because malware actually still will work. And especially the infection chains around the things you've covered well, the link files to the DLLs uh, through the ISOs, like those, those sorts of infection chains are absolutely being used by those BEC crews that are generating that type of volume. So I believe I believe the that... correct term is malware turducken, uh, Ryan. <laughs> exactly. It, it maybe not quite as delicious as that if you're on the <laughs> detection side, but uh, but yeah, and that and that is the sort of thing again, but will lead to those collapses in techniques, the overlaps in techniques that we're seeing, and even Adam mentioned on the show. It's amazing how fast everybody moves in the same direction when somebody discovers a new infection chain that works really well, mm. and then at the end of the day, the question is, how do I monetize? And if you happen to have a lot of bank accounts all over the world and money mules, maybe you'll go in the BEC direction more often than not. 
if you're in a different place and different set of circumstances and you have different criminal partners, you might go a different direction. Yeah, but ultimately, it, it might just be get the Bitcoin, deal with cash out later sort of thing. Worry about that in a couple of years, even something like yeah, that. Again, right? it, yeah, again, if you have faith in the crypto markets and the, yeah. you think the crypto winter will end, then yes, absolutely. But it is really interesting, though, to see these crews around the world develop skill, develop scale, in fact, in a way that they hadn't previously and be able to you know, not necessarily be indistinguishable from the crews that we used to say were kind of the alphas, but mm. be more or less doing the same stuff. I think one thing that's interesting about BEC is, it, look, and you just sort of alluded to it, it's not, just, it's not a crime type that just affects big enterprise. Right. Because some small businesses tend to push around pretty large transactions. So, you know, what we've seen in Australia is, uh, you know, real estate settlements, building firms, right? So some builder comes in, does a kitchen and bathroom renovation for 50,000 bucks or something, and they get BEC. In fact, I've got a friend around here. He's a, you know, he's like a freelance civil engineer and someone he deals with sent him a bad invoice and he, you know, he contacted me because he'd clicked on the PDF or whatever and was freaking out. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's probably fine. Um, and it was, but you know, this is, this is the sort of stuff we're dealing with when we've got, uh, yeah, people who work in construction engineering often on their own being BEC'd. So it's a whole, whole of ecosystem problem. You know, I'd, I'd sort of expect that companies like Google and Microsoft need to do more on this, frankly. And I also think the banks need to do more because they are, their laziness is enabling a lot of this fraud. I can't speak to, to America, but I know here in Australia, there's no work done by the banks to do any sort of matching, even fuzzy matching on the uh, uh, specified account name to what the actual account name is on a, on a, on a, on a payment. Whereas in the UK, there's like a tiered uh, filtering system that works that works pretty well. So, I mean, this might even be one where policymakers could have a bit of an impact. What do you, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think there is a role for government to come in and demand better from uh, banking the banking sectors in their countries and maybe demand a little bit better from their um, uh, uh, the technology companies that operate within their borders? I would love to see that, and I think that is a fantastically productive angle because a mm. lot of the changes are relatively simple ones, yeah. uh, particularly around the creation of accounts and the way that certain payments are handled. It, to your point, though, ultimately, we're all living in houses of the same construction because everybody's got O365 or Google Workspace or something like that. And that's actually kind of true on the consumer side as well as the enterprise side. So the Microsoft improved baseline is a really good step. That should be for everybody, consumers mm. included. And it's, it's somewhat insane that it's not at the moment. But with these big kind of systemic risk issues, you look at where you can squeeze them that seems to make some headway. And it is very, very clearly around the cryptocurrency exchanges uh, when yeah. it comes to the ransomware actors. And when it comes to BEC guys, you, know, you have very similar kind of transnational flows of money that are currently occurring. You know, we have a slight shift in the pattern in terms of which countries tend to be popular at any given point in time. You know, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, mainland China have always been you know, key points in that. But being able to get the global financial system on board and working, uh, working to basically make those transactions stick out and a little more obvious and a little harder to go through multiple hops like that and the initial accounts harder to create, all of that introduces friction into the system for them and makes this less profitable. 
And the thing that is worrisome, I think, is, is the scale that the BEC guys are now operating at because they have clearly built the, t- the types of businesses that have been able to grow and sustain themselves throughout the pandemic and are now mm. just as formidable as any other actor. Well, and they've, the they've got... World. They've got interests to protect, I think, is the is the thing that you're driving at there, which right. is they're a hair away from having their own R&D teams to you know, ensure their, their increase, uh, their, their continued profitability. One thing that I think could make a difference here, it's a technology, right? It's a technology that I think could really make a difference is WebAuthn. Um, I think WebAuthn, in terms of a, I mean, obviously it's not going to eliminate BEC, but it will make the ecosystem a lot tougher for those uh, organizations to handle. I mean, it, we have seen a commitment from the big tech companies to actually integrate it into browsers and whatnot and, uh, you know, phones, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I just, for once, I have this kind of optimistic feeling that we're going to see pretty rapid take up of WebAuthn, particularly in the finance space. What's your feeling on that? Do you, do you share my optimism or are you, are you going to disappoint me, Ryan? I, I'm cautiously optimistic. I just think it's going to take a long time. I mean, obviously, it's already taken quite a long time. But see, and that's the thing. I think we're past, I, I just have this feeling like we're past the part that took a long time and now it's in the browsers, it's in the phones and it's kind of, it's a standard and it's available to everyone. And I just have a feeling that it's going to go quick, this bit. And I think I think the, the interesting inflection point is absolutely now and it'll come down to whether people are willing to force it or not. If you're willing to force the new world and you can deal with the disruption that that will cause, that, then wonderful things will happen very, very quickly. I look at the, the, the threat data every day and we still see more credfish than anything else. I would love to see the BEC groups forced to become R&D shops and forced to be able to write their own malware because that is going to be much, 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 much harder than what they're doing presently. And that would be good for absolutely everybody. You're right. The web auth end piece is going to happen sooner rather than later, and it'll happen at different rates in different places, and that'll squeeze the water balloon. I think if it happens in different countries, you'll see the BEC actors who are very effective at operating globally just simply go to different places to you know, basically have an arbitrage opportunity and, and fraud yeah. effectiveness. Hit different and, markets. And, and hit different markets and like, onwards, we, onwards, like we see yeah. them doing over time. And we've been able to see that in our data and, and ultimately... It's the same groups that have figured out how to do this. It's a very organized form of crime, but ultimately we can see the path to making their lives a lot harder. And I do share your optimism on that front. Yeah, but they are agile. Uh, They're very agile and modern and uh, it's rather irritating. But Ryan Callumber, thank you very much for joining me to have that interview. It's interesting to, to get your perspective on a crime ecosystem that is in flux. Cheers. Always a pleasure, Pat. That was Ryan Callumber from Proofpoint there. Big thanks to Ryan for his time and big thanks to Proofpoint for being a major risky business sponsor. You can find them, of course, at proofpoint.com. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I posted a Soapbox episode a couple of days ago uh, that some of you might find interesting. That one is with nuclear security and it's about the complexities involved in trying to run a global uh, vulnerability management program. So you can uh, uh, find that in the podcast feed. Uh, But yeah, I will be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.